Dotnet Rocks episode 684 with guest Pete Brown. Recorded live Wednesday, June 29th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard for an hour or so. What's up, Mr. Campbell? Did I tell you I went to Scotland? And you told me you were going to, yeah. Did you go on a distillery tour? We did. We uh, we went to Speyside, and uh, we went to the Macallan, and uh, there's a lot of distilleries up there, let me tell you. So did you take a drinking tour or a tasting tour? I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I tasted it a lot. I tasted it a lot. It yeah. tasted good. And, you know, after you've seen a few distilleries, they're more or less all the same. But the my right. favorite part of the whole thing was... You know, there's the famous brands in that area. There's the Glenfiddich, Glenlivet, the McAllen. Uh, they're all in that same space. But then there's all these other distilleries that largely don't have a brand. They right. just sell cask to blenders. So right. guys like Mortlock and Dalloween and, uh, and, and Strathill. Every so often they run across a great barrel and make a special bottling they call a flora and fauna bottling. Yikes. And you, they just don't sell them anywhere outside of Scotland pretty much. So That's I came insane. home with an armload of those. Wow. So I'm having a party at your place. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know, did you start out at the McAllen distillery and then work your way towards Johnny Walker or what? Uh, we didn't go, <laughs> uh, we did visit famous grouse. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, a, a definitely a blended scotch. Uh, McAllen was the only one we really booked in advance. Everything else we sort of winged it, went to Cardhu cool. and, uh, and a few others just, you know, you would not necessarily known as much about. We got to Abalur, but a lot of those places just don't do tours. They're just yeah. distilleries, right? They're, they're working spots, but it's, it was really a lot of fun. And Scotland, awesome place to visit. Had such yeah. a good time. I bet. I'm going to go find an excuse to stop by there at least twice a year because I need to maintain my inventory now. I went when I was 12. And uh, went with an American choir singing uh, choral concerts in nice. cathedrals in England and Scotland. It was great. When they got lots of those. Yeah, it was wonderful. Awesome. Great experience. I'm going back. All right, let's do uh, Better Know Framework. All right, what do you got? Hey, and by the way, you know, there's a whole bunch of albums coming out of Pop Studios in the next month or so. Yes, you have been a busy man. Yeah. The first one uh, that we did is Chris Castle's Of God and Man, and he did that with the Womack family band backing him. All original stuff. You like Paul Simon, The Beatles, Americana, good lyrics, great music and melodies, awesome harmonies. Uh, you can go to Castle. That's just like a castle, like a Scottish castle. Castle.pwop.com. That'll bring you to that. And it would be mean a lot to me if you supported uh, these albums bottom up. I would I would help uh, the musical Carl quite a lot. Okay, so today's project, and it's a project on CodePlex, comes out of the Patterns and Practices group at Microsoft, and this is Project Silk. Heard of it? No. It provides guidance for building cross-browser web applications with a focus on client-side interactivity. These applications take advantage of the latest web standards like HTML5, CSS3, 
and ECMAScript 5, along with modern web technologies such as jQuery, IE9, Mm -hmm. and ASP.NET MVC 3. So to illustrate this guidance, the project includes a reference implementation called Mileage Stats that enables its users to track various metrics about their vehicles and fill-ups. Much of the effort in building it was applied to the usability and interactivity of the experience. Animations were included to enhance the enjoyment of the site. Ajax is used to keep the interface responsive and immersive. A great deal of care was also taken to ensure that the client-side JavaScript facilitates modularity and maintainability. To accomplish these design goals, the JavaScript code was structured into widgets that benefit, and that's in quotes. That's not a trademark. (laughs) (laughs) That benefit from the jQuery UI widget factory. So there you go. And there's some screenshots. Uh, it's at silk.codeplex.com, S-I-L-K. Uh, it looks very nice. Very, Sounds very like we nice. may need to make a show around it. We may need to indeed make a show around it. It looks beautiful. The intended audience is for existing web developers who are interested in taking advantage of the latest web standards and technologies. That means you, listener. Check it out. <laughs> yep. And it's not rated yet. But uh, it looks like it was just dropped. Uh, the last one, drop 12, was June 22nd, 2011. At 3 in the morning. Yeah. That's some programming. That's, That's what some that is. dedication right there. Yep. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off the website for show 659, which was the one with Billy. And it was Rod Falanga who sent this uh, comment. He said, I listened to this .NET Rocks episode, and it was excellent and timely. I'm working on a rewrite of an old VB6 app into a WPF app, Whoa. and I've been considering various architecture patterns, such as SCSF, but I found it way too complicated. Then I learned of Prism and considered it, but listening to this episode was almost like an epiphany. Billy said that although such patterns as Prism can be applied to many different software solutions, it can't address them all. Furthermore, I was interested to learn that Prism is best suited to a large application, and the application I'm beginning is a major one, and certainly large for my IT shop, but it isn't as large as Billy suggested that Prism is better suited for. Hmm. I've written one small WPF app using MVVM, and that worked quite well. I'm going to proceed with that, and I'm going to listen to this episode again as it's loaded full of great info. Thanks again. Awesome. Rod? Hey, thank you. Glad you're listening. I'm glad it worked out. In fact, you'll have to let us know how your project went so we can uh, find out more about people getting successful with WPF. That's what this is all about. And I'll send you out a mug. I'll contact you in Twitter since that's your connection to the site. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows or want to let us know about a project you're working on, leave a comment on a show at DonnetRocks.com. Well, this is a very special show, Richard, because as you know, Pete Brown is with us today. Pete is a senior program manager with Microsoft leading the developer community team, as well as a former Microsoft Silverlight MVP, INET speaker, and RIA architect, rich internet application. Pete's focus at Microsoft is the community around client application development, which is WPF, Silverlight, Surface, C++, native Windows API, and more. Pete also spends a lot of time working with the .NET micro framework. Pete is the author of the best-selling Silverlight 4 in action, published by Manning Publications, and the new Silverlight 5 in action, also by Manning. Welcome, Pete. Hey, guys. Uh, but let's get, just get this out of the way. A Commodore 64 emulator? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. you guys would appreciate that, I think. Totally. You know. Oh, absolutely. The little people inside your machine? 
That was the greatest application ever. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I started my kid off on my Commodore 128 just because, you know, I wanted to get him uh, gaming early, so I figured that was a, a real easy device to, to get him started with, you know. Um, my wife didn't really appreciate that, but uh, he's graduated to the Xbox now anyway. But, yeah, uh, yeah so I, I just had, a, you know, kind of a, a burr one day and decided that I was going to port an emulator to Silverlight just to see if it could be done, and Commodore 64 seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Where is the URL? Uh, so I need to give you a new URL for that, but it's on my site at tenrem.net. Okay. And I need to, uh, I need to update that for the latest version of Silverlight. So okay. I'll, I'll have an update of that out when Silverlight 5 launches later this year. Uh, but it's pretty interesting. I took the old Frodo emulator, if you guys are familiar with that, which was written in C++ and removed all the pointer math in it, which was, you know, quite a challenge and translated that over into C sharp code and, and had it running on Silverlight. And 10rem.net is your blog, ten, the number 1010rem.net, rem, yeah. like rapid eye movement. You know, one thing I'd say in favor of that whole era of computing, Commodore 64, the TRS-80, the Apple II, and so forth, is that everybody programmed. You were right yeah. at the command line. It right. was so approachable to write some code. You had to. In fact, wasn't the Commodore 64's operating system basic? More or less. Yeah, I mean, everything was just built right in there, and the, the, the command line uh, shell was basic, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I just, I feel like we've lost that. It's There's so much overhead to getting to Hello World now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I think made that so popular at the time is it, it was very approachable. I mean, even, uh, you know, even in seventh grade or so, I'm going to date myself on that, the, the way that we uh, used to get taught uh, math and programming and stuff is they would all boot up logo on there and we just control right. the turtle and deal with angles and all that stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure what the kids are doing today, but I bet it's not that cool. Uh, yeah. the best thing I've seen, we did a show on it a while ago with Lynn Langett, uh, was the, uh, the simple basic, which is oh, just, yes. it's very logo S stripped down basic, but it's actually running VB.ed on the back end. You just, it's a shell to make it simpler. I, uh, introduced my youngest daughter to programming like this. I booted up Visual Studio. I created a new Silverlight project. I had a little XAML thing there. I dropped some scroll bars onto the window and hooked their, you know, back, you know, their their scroll, whatever it is. I can't remember exactly the name of the event handler. But uh, whenever they scrolled, I had three of them. I would change a value, red, green, and blue, and create a color on the fly. And the, the color was the value of those scroll bars. And that's what I set the background color of the screen to. So then she could just sit there, you know, with just a couple of lines of code. She could sit there and create colors from these three scroll bars and um, and see the, the immediacy of, of what's going on. And she got it. And it took like five minutes. So that was that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. I don't know if you guys know, but the, the C64 community is actually still as big now as it used to be, especially in Europe. I mean, you still have a lot of demo competitions and groups that are creating new applications for the Commodore. Wow. There's a there's a website where it's actually being served up from a Commodore 64, which is interesting because the pages are larger than the memory capacity of the C64. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and people are making Ethernet boards for it and everything else. So lots of cool stuff still going on there. All right, let's talk Silverlight. Silverlight 5? I, there's a Silverlight 5? What's the point? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. So yes, there's definitely a Silverlight Five. You know, we uh, released a, a beta of that at Mix, which I thought uh, was pretty cool. It's a little bit different beta than what we've done before, in that it didn't have all the features complete for that version. You know, we wanted to get something out early for Mix that people could start playing with, but there's some things that are going to make it into the final release that just simply weren't there, like uh, P invoke support and other stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so what's the point? So we still have millions of developers developing in Silverlight, and a lot of these are behind-the-firewall business application developers who we've actually been trying to target over the past year or two, mm. and they're very excited about it because they get to you know, have a .NET platform that's just uh, either deployed via the browser as a plug-in or, or runs just like a normal desktop app but doesn't have all the setup stuff that most of the other technologies require. So we still have a you know a really good following of people that are very excited about Silverlight and are interested in this release and going to do awesome stuff with it. So just so you know, Richard and I are very very excited about Silverlight, and uh, we know the sky is not falling. But there's a huge crowd of very worried people out there who say, "Well, if if everything is going to be HTML5 and JavaScript in the future, which you know some that we have the idea that that's the way it's going, why should we even think about Silverlight anymore?" And um, and Microsoft's answer is pretty much come to build, and right. all will be revealed. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about that? So build is going to be about developing applications for Windows 8. You know, uh, as for what we're actually going to talk about there, I'm not sure. You know, we'll see what, what gets covered on that. You know, we have already mentioned the HTML and JavaScript approach, mm-hmm. and I think the reason why that was brought out in the demos is it's new and, and quite frankly, being able to do HTML and JavaScript and have it integrate into the Windows Shell is just pretty damn exciting. Pretty exciting. Um, you know, I and and I, I definitely understand the reaction to that, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there's a whole group of people out there that live in HTML and CSS and JavaScript that yeah. are, are just totally psyched about this. And, and have been, uh, up until now, a little bit unreachable by Microsoft, would you say? Yeah, I mean, you know, quite frankly, the the people who are doing hardcore HTML and JavaScript tend to be the people who haven't drunk all the Kool Aid, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, we, you know, I think you know, pulling them over and showing them how they can reuse their skills and uh, create, you know, real Windows applications is a pretty cool thing. We got some tropical punch for you. Come take a sip. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. You like it? No, really. It tastes real good. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So I mean I think I think uh you know anybody with half a brain can see that um Silverlight very much is still a part of the equation uh and uh and shouldn't be discounted. Yeah, at the at the very least what was shown uh or at least I think what Stephen mentioned uh during one of those interviews was that yes, you can have Silverlight applications running um, just like they were today. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, if you're developing a business application, mm-hmm. um, I think that alone should be enough to have some level of comfort in that your business applications, which, you know, to be quite honest, are probably not going to be touch-enabled uh, type applications here mm-hmm. on day one, mm-hmm. uh, are going to run on Windows 8. Yeah. And Windows 8 looks damn exciting. Yeah, yeah. Really does, from the demos yep, that we've and- seen. I was just blown away by you know the the new uh, shell uh, that we showed on that, and and really I think what's most exciting about this and gets maybe lost a little bit is we have Windows 8 now, and now I'm going to sound like a marketing guy, but I'm going to do it anyway. So do we it. have uh, Windows 8, 
we have Xbox, and we have Windows Phone, and all three of those now finally have a unified UI. Yeah. And it's nice to look at something and say, hey, that's a, that's a Microsoft brand UI, and it looks good. Yeah. It's nice to see Metro coming out in various Microsoft products. Uh, but we, is there going to be a toolkit or something specifically for Silverlight to help us build Metro-style apps? It certainly works that way for WinPhone 7, but I'm thinking in other uh, form factors. Yeah, there have been a couple of templates made available for that. I'm not sure what the, the long-term plans are for providing uh, you know, more toolkits along that, those lines, but we have some official templates. I've seen some CodePlex projects where people have gotten together and pooled a lot of information from different applications and created kind of a Metro toolkit. So we have those in the community. We have the templates from us. Uh, and then truthfully, Metro itself, the, one of the nice things about it is it's really easy UI to create. Mm, right. you know, it's, it's about, you know, standard squares and rectangles and bold shapes. And, you know, if you get those and the kind of the clean feel uh, approach to that, then you're able to create pretty much any UI you want based on that. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So we've heard some stuff about Silverlight 5, and I do want to dig into that further. But what about WPF? Where is that going? Yeah, so we're working on the next version of WPF, so we don't have an official version number for that yet. Right. Um, but uh, that has some new features for... You know, dealing with some of the issues that um, some of the ISVs, who are main customers for WPF, have brought up, things like dealing with airspace issues, you know, being able to integrate browser content and Windows Forms content and ActiveX and all sorts of other things and not have the big rectangular cutouts, you know, the H-Wind issues that we've had in previous versions. Oh, yeah. So we're doing a, yeah, we're doing a bunch with that, and we're doing a lot with just general performance around binding and very large collections and um, marshalling data across uh, thread boundaries so that we don't have to worry about binding issues when you have your uh, your view model on a separate thread and stuff like that. So um, it's not a huge release, but it's it's a very pointed release to take care of some very specific issues that our main customers have brought up. So I'm pretty excited about that. Wow. There's always been this sense that, that WPF and Silverlight might be coming together. I guess there's nothing there yet. So we started to to do more convergence of that in that, you know, the teams are the same teams and they were sharing a lot of the same um, uh, same code, you know, especially a lot of the stuff around the XAML stack and whatnot. And I think, um, truthfully, we made a decision at some point over the last year or two that we have a different customer set for the most part between Silverlight and WPF. 
So WPF customers tend to be, and this this is a broad brush, and you're going to get a zillion phone calls of people who who don't fit this. Yeah. But the WPF customers tend to be the larger ISVs doing packaged applications. You know, things like Autodesk and uh, truthfully Visual Studio and stuff like that. Yeah. So we're we're being more thoughtful about targeting the fixes and targeting the enhancements and stuff to that group for WPF. Where Silverlight is more. Um, you know, more business applications. It's seen a lot of success behind the firewall in businesses. Uh, you know, enhanced media, the stuff that quite honestly you can't do in HTML5 with streaming media and, um, and some of the things that we've done there. Uh, and so the two are, you know, they tech, technically they've gotten a lot closer together, but the audiences themselves have diverged a bit. When I've always had a sense that the two teams were complementing each other well, that there was stuff the Silverlight team would build that then would get backed into WPF and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, the interesting thing there is they really are the same teams. You know, you'll have some PMs that are a little bit different, but um, there's a lot of resource sharing between the, the whole XAML stack there. So it's it's nice to see, uh, you know, folks working together on that. It's cool. So let's dig into some features here around uh, Silverlight 5. What, what are your favorites? All right, so there are, there are a few features that I really like in Silverlight 5, and I gave some demos of some of this stuff at, at TechEd. Um, and one of them is implicit templates. And implicit templates in Silverlight 5 give you the ability to have, um, let's say you have a collection of, uh, I use I use Twitter, of course, as the example, because that's sort of become the default data source for applications mm-hmm. these days. Uh-huh. Uh, so let's say you have a, a collection of Twitter items, and some of those are tweets, and some of those are direct messages, and, and some of those might be like notification information if somebody follows you or something like that, right? If you have a collection of those and they have, uh, say, the same base class, you can load them all into a single collection and bind that to a list box. And right now, today, in Silverlight 4, you would have to have the same template apply to all of those, one template in your list box. And what the template does is it, it takes that collection information, that the individual entity that you've got in there, and formats it using XAML so you can have a, a picture and some text. In Silverlight 5, you can associate the template with a data type as opposed to with the, the list box itself. So you could say that anywhere in my application or in the scope that I've defined this, that I'm going to have a tweet, this is the template to use. Any place I'm going to have a direct message, this is the template to use. And any place I have a notification item, same thing, look for that. And then when you bind the stuff to the list box, um, they will each get formatted using their own unique templates. Hmm. So you think about business applications, there are a lot of places where... Um, one, you may want to reuse a template across the application, say like a person's address. And the old uh, approach would be to create a custom control that had X number of text boxes, and we, you know, plunk that down in each and every form where we would use that. Uh, the new approach is you can define a template, an implicit template that's associated with the address type, and just have that automatically applied throughout your entire application. I like the idea of no more cross-thread problems in WPF in Windows apps. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a, a very exciting thing. I mean, um, you, well, we'll still have separate UI threads, and, you know, if you try and uh, access uh, the UI thread from a non-UI thread, you're still going to get that cross-thread exception. Yeah. But we wanted to make sure that when you were binding um, two collections and stuff on the, on the back end, that that just happened for you. Yeah, you shouldn't have to worry about that. I like it. Yeah, exactly. I like it, too. And also, there are some... Some real performance improvements there on the you know back to the WPF side 
for really, really large collections of data where, you know, you want to deal with things like um, uh, notification of new items added and whatnot. So there's a lot of stuff in there that, that makes it so that you can have these enormous collections of data and not have them bogged down like they used to. So it's just sort of recognizing that the product has gotten larger adoption on bigger apps and it needs to deal with these massive uh, application structures. Exactly. And the the way that we've approached taking in, and I say we as though I wrote the code, right? Uh, the, way, <laughs> the way that we approached um, some of the Silverlight things where like Silverlight will have a feature that um, WPF will not is by getting rid of the airspace issues with the browser. So if you wanted to include some Silverlight content in your WPF app, you can have it inside a browser, inside WPF. And that sounds a little hacky, but it actually, when you look at it, it's, it's much more seamless looking to the end user than you might think. Um, but you can have, say, like some deep zoom stuff embedded in there and have, um, you know, have that participate properly in layout with WPF. Mm. And you're working on a book for Silverlight 5? Oh, yeah. I'm definitely working on the next version of my book for, for 5. Um, it's funny, a lot of people have, said, have used that as a barometer as to whether or not it's okay for them to go and start building applications in 5. They're like, are nice. you going to actually write your book for that? I was like, yeah, of course I am. Like, okay, if you're investing the, the rest of your year writing that, then maybe the technology still has some legs, right? Um, mm. But yes, I, I'm updating it. I think it's going to hit about a thousand pages here now with uh, all the updates in five. A um, bunch of cool stuff in there. And actually, for your listeners, here's a shameless plug. I have a, a code if they want to get uh, 38% off the, the early access edition that's already out there. Ooh, we like codes. Uh, uh, you love codes, I'm yeah. sure. And if you go to manning.com slash uh, pbrown2, because pbrown is the old one, the code is S5, as in Silverlight 5, IA, as in inaction, 38, as in 38% off. Nice. Go buy it today. Go buy it. The Silverlight 4 book did really well, and I, I've had a lot of good feedback on that, and I've had some folks ask for you know, deeper examples in some areas, so I'm, I'm trying to incorporate that. And then there's totally new stuff like, you know, the 3D support and Silverlight 5 and all the things I'm going to need to cover in there about, um, like, P-Invoke and, and other cool things that we're adding into 5. Awesome. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Let's talk .NET micro framework, just because it's cool. Ooh, hey, man. Oh, yeah. Speaking of that, have, did you get your toys? I did. I haven't had a chance to tear into the box yet. I've oh, been so I have. busy. I have. I've already got a project. So, yeah, Richard and I got, uh, we interviewed the GHI Fez guys, and they sent us a, a kit. And, man, I had so much fun making that little LED turn on and off when I hit the button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's totally awesome. That's that's fun right there. No, seriously, I'm totally thrilled with, I press the button, the LED blinks. Yeah. There is something very, um, there's something very visceral about writing some code and having it do something physical, physical, right? As opposed to just scrolling code up on the screen or something. Yeah, you know, having it interact with the real world gives you, I think, a a, 
a, a warm fuzzy that you know all the graphics and all the cool apps on a workstation themselves just just can't match. Yeah. And yeah, you're deeply involved in this, right? You've been building all kinds of stuff in the .NET Micro Framework. Yeah. So when I was on campus last week, I met with um, Colin Miller, who uh, I think you guys might have talked to at some point, um, who is the the pum for the .NET Micro Framework. And first of all, you walk into Guy's office, and it's just robots and stuff all over the place. It is one of the two coolest offices I've been to on campus. And you can't help but, like, touch stuff. <laughs> you know, he's got, um, <laughs> he's got, like, four or five different robots. He's got these scanners. He's got, um, you know, a bicycle computer, all sorts of cool stuff there. And he's doing some pretty amazing things working with the community on the .NET micro framework. So I don't know if you guys know this, but um, the framework is open source. So it's under, I believe, an Apache license, and the version that's in beta right now, which is 4.2, has about two-thirds of the features that are in there are community-contributed uh, um, content, right? Wow. So, so yeah, so they've checked in code, and it's made it into the official product, and I know another third or so have come from Colin's team, and that's what's going to be released as 4.2. So really exciting stuff there. Yeah, it's an interesting evolution of all of these sorts of things. Uh, I'm just using... I'm wondering when we're going to start seeing this in regular appliances because the hardware has got so cheap now that it almost doesn't make sense to do anything other than something as rich as a .NET framework. We could have an IP address. Heck, you could run a little web server off of your dishwasher with it. Yeah, and, and folks have written web servers and, and uh, Twitter servers and everything else from these little devices. As a matter of fact, at uh, TechEd, uh, Colin had uh, a fairly large booth. I was pretty impressed. He had a booth with all sorts of cool stuff on it. And one of his things was what he calls the Internet of Things, right? Hmm. Where he had a device, I don't remember if it was a NetDuino or a Fez or something else, but it had a bunch of sensors attached to it. And it was sending information up to Azure, which was then being pulled down to a Silverlight application in the browser, displaying a real-time graph of things like the temperature and ambient humidity and stuff like that. So totally cool things going on there. Yeah, the the trick with all of this, I mean, the electronics is the easy part, the sort of digital side of this. It's when you do that digital analog conversion, when things need to move and they never move as far as you think, you know, nothing's as exact as you thought. That's right. that's where it all gets hard. Yep. So I've built a, a few little robots here, and, and I'm pretty new to this still. Basically, I started learning electronics because I got a Netuino from Chris Walker, and I was like, wow, this is kind of cool, and I hooked up an LED, and then I thought well, maybe what happens if I hook up these other things to it and manage not to let the magic smoke out of anything yet, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure that's going to happen here at some point. Um, but, uh, yeah, so dealing with the you know the analog world from the digital world is a bit of a challenge because just like you said, you'll have a motor run and there's slop in the gears and there's you know not exact voltage and it depends on how well charged your batteries are and everything else. And yeah. you have to have some sort of a feedback loop where you can count say, like the rotations of that motor in a digital way and get that information back so that you can move the, move the robot the correct distance. Well, and even if you do count the motor rotation, it's the traction of the wheel that matters. Well, so what you usually do is you hook up some sort of a, like a, a black and white um, disc or something with holes in it that's attached either to the wheel or to some gear that's pretty close to the wheel. Yeah. Uh, and you count the rotations of that using one of these LED sensors. Right. Yeah. And so that gets you pretty close to that. So, you know, short of counting the actual wheel rotation, um, I think that gets you pretty close. But I just think as geeks, we tend to think, okay, now I know the wheel's moving, but I don't know if the vehicle's moving. 
Yes, yeah, it's yeah, off exactly. the ground, right? It's it's wedged against a wall. It's slipping yep. on on linoleum. Like there's all those factors that make you think a lot harder about what the real world problem is. Right, and then you start combining things like distance sensors and having to deal with you know the flopping those and comparing yourself to known points in the room and stuff. And I haven't gone anywhere near that. Uh, my robot or a couple of the robots that I have here both have a distinct. Um, uh, limp in that they, they all sort of turn either to the left or to the right a little bit more than they should, but um, adding a couple more of these things in and uh, it could be pretty neat. So how did you end up making your own circuit board? So I'm big into synthesizers. Uh, hey, cool. I can't play. <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, I can't play with crap, but I like to tinker with them, right? And I, I know you guys would appreciate that given your backgrounds. Um, and so I've got a rack of synthesizers sitting here next to me. You know, I've got a, a Roland JP8080. I'm looking up at it. I've got an Axis Virus and some other Roland stuff and a, a Dave Smith Tetra and, and some other cool things. Cool. And all but one of them use kind of the legacy MIDI connectors, you know, the five-pin DIN connectors. Mm-hmm. And right now they're all daisy-chained together, which means if I want to play something with the virus, then I have to turn everything else on that's in that chain, right? So that's kind of wasteful if I only want to mess around with that thing. So what I decided I needed was a MIDI through box, which, you know, has one in and have any number of MIDI outputs to it. And that's not as simple as just, hey, take these connectors and wire them directly to each other because you have to make sure the voltages, voltages match and um, you have the right resistance and you're, you're um, you know, protected from bad designs on the other end of the synthesizers, which, as we know, old synthesizer equipment, once in a while there's a bad design in there that uh, could blow up the rest of your stuff if you're not adequately protected. And so I decided I was going to build this MIDI through box. And I thought, well, I've been wanting to try to have my own circuit board manufactured because I, what I'm really interested in in a long-term project is to scratch build my own uh, analog synthesizer which is an enormous project, so I thought I'd take a baby step there. And so I decided to give a hand, you know, give a try to um, designing my own circuit board, using some tools out there and having that manufactured. And that's, that's really how that came about. And I've blogged all the steps so far on my blog. There's a cool company I've been working with that gives you photos of each step in the process as they're processing your board. So it's been fun to watch that. Hey, you should download Carl's MIDI tools. Uh, dot zip. Yes, I should. From franklins.net slash dot net dot aspx. D-O-T-N-E-T dot aspx, that is. And, uh, this is a library that I wrote that uses, um, P invoke, you know, to wrap the MIDI functionality in the Windows API into a nice little managed code utility. And it is essentially a router. Cool. So it has, you can connect, uh, an input device and an output device. And, um, you can, you get an event when data travels from one to the other. And, um, you can, you pick your devices by name, not by number, which was a, a mistake I saw other people doing because numbers change in the system. And, uh, and it just works great. I used this tool in a demo that I did where I played my piano. I have a piano in the studio, a real uh, Yamaha piano that has the symphony, uh, MIDI implementation in it. So you can play, you can plug in a keyboard and play, and the keys go up and down as it plays. Oh, neat. So I hooked it up with a little uh, application on a computer that just sits in a loop and reads messages from UDP, which are essentially just raw MIDI messages, note-on, note-off messages. And, um, and I basically play my piano through the Internet. <laughs> nice. 
Nice. I remember, now, actually, I remember you um, demoing that or, or talking about it before. Yeah. It was a very cool project. Oh, that's so much so fun. What I decided to do on this one is I started looking at circuits to add in a MIDI activity light on the front of it, so it you know, blink when messages were coming through. But as it turns out, that was non-trivial because the messages come and go so fast, the light doesn't have, you know, the LED doesn't have t- enough time to light up. And so you have to put in something in there that will create a delay. Things that are really trivial to do in code, you have to figure out hardware circuits for it. So finally I bailed on that and decided, well, you know what, I can leave a bunch of hooks in here, and which is funny because I used to always get told to leave hooks in my code for as yet unknown features, and I always laughed at people, but <laughs> it's much easier to do in hardware. Um, so I left a bunch of hooks in there that I could patch in a Netduino or one of the Fez Pandas or something like that. Yeah. And I could do a lot more than just an activity LED. I can have routing in there so, you know, messages to certain channels can only go to certain output ports and whatnot. The Netduino stuff is really cool. Um, it, just correct me if I'm wrong, guys, now that you, I have a couple electronics geeks here. I'm going to take advantage of it. Because those will put out up to 5 volts, which can trigger just a whole bunch of devices. Sure. If I get a standard... You know, the cell phone vibrators that buzz, you know, when you're in vibrate mode. If I get a vibrator motor that takes five volts in, it's a piece of cake to wire it up to one of those things, isn't it? Depends on how much amperage it'll draw. Plus, typically, you're not going to want to hook a motor directly up to something like a a Netduino or any of those. Because you get, and and I'm going to start talking about things that I only know a tiny bit about, but you get um, back EMF and signals that go back to the the device that it shouldn't be sending back. Ooh. And I understand that can cause some pretty you know, pretty nasty problems. So what you usually do is you use an external motor board. So there, there are tons of different ones out there, yeah, but they I have all those. the appropriate protection in place. And they take an external power supply that you use, and then the, the Netduino or whatever only sends signals to say when you want it to run. Oh, I see. Yeah, generally, you want your the power source that does analog work and the power source that does digital work to be isolated from each other. I see. So the 5 volts is really a switch voltage. Yeah. It, when it goes on, that's the on state. And when it goes off, that's the off state. Well, all right. So the, the Netduino and I believe the Fez itself are 3.3-volt are boards. So they have a 5-volt output if you're supplying sufficient input just as kind of an accessory right. um, outlet if you want, usually to power LCD screens and whatnot. Oh, okay. Um, but all the signaling is done 3.3 volts. Oh. And this is actually one of the things that got me in trouble a lot. Um, because the Arduino boards, which is kind of the original um, form factor here, and it's something that you can use C or, I think, uh, processing or something like that. I forget the exact languages. Um, that's a 5-volt board, so most of the shields that were created for it are all 5-volt compatible, and some require 5 volts, which the Netduino doesn't do. I see. I get it. Hey, thanks for setting me straight on that. Hey, no problem. That's so cool. I'm, I basically... Uh, I've got a few projects in mind. Most of them have to do with stuff around the house. But um, <clears throat> I think I asked, uh, I asked, I came across the basic stamp once, and Richard said, uh, be careful. <laughs> I said, why? <laughs> he said, that will get you in trouble. We won't see you for weeks. <laughs> well, you get yep. so caught up in the ideas, things yeah. you want to build. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, it's it's very enabling to be able to do all these different things, being able to build your own hardware, and suddenly you feel like you could design anything. Um, you can't, right? But you feel like you could go off and design your own uh, computer or something like that. So. Great for yeah, kids. Although there is one guy who just designed, uh, or some high school kid just built an 8-bit 
computer from scratch, and he's and he built some games on it. If you look at it, it's just a whole bunch of discrete chips with uh, um, tons and tons of wiring between them. So I was totally schooled by that. Wow, cool. It's all harder than it looks, actually, but there's no reason for that to hold you back. It's worth exp- the, the good news is the, the Internet's there, and yeah. other people have done what you're trying to do. Just take their suggestions. Great for kids. You know, anytime my kid says, I'm bored, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, we'll fix that. <laughs> yep. Yep. My son goes nuts in my office here because I've got a couple robotic arms and stuff that I've bought his kits as well, and he just thinks those are the greatest things in the world. So he'll be a geek. Yeah, it's funny what actually captures kids' attention because straight-up programming doesn't seem to be it anymore. Yep. And so I've got this this um, Owie OWI robotic arm trainer that uh, it's like this yellow and black small plastic robotic arm, and you can get a USB kit for it, which I got. And they have a little application that runs on Windows that uh, you can program the movements for it, and it's all graphical. Like you you press the button to move the particular um, you know, joint on that arm for X number of seconds, and then you add that as a step, and then you can play them all back afterwards. And my son's five, but he was totally into that. He got it completely. Yeah, I think the, it's the physicality of it that connects everyone up so well. Yep. So, Pete, what's next for you? Uh, we're going to see you at some conferences? Yeah, so I'm hoping to make it out to Build, um, but I'll also be at VS Live in the fall here, so talking about some interesting things there. Um, continuing to do a lot of stuff with Silverlight over the course of the year here. Um, not just the book, but also a lot more content. And I'm I'm really excited about some of the things coming in Silverlight Five, especially the the 3D stuff and P Invoke and and whatnot. Yeah. And if if I can add just a little a, a little word of wisdom for what it's worth. So when I was delivering my presentations at TechEd on what's new in Silverlight Five, I showed things like um, 3D support, and I showed uh, implicit templates and a bunch of other stuff. And I actually had some people come to me afterwards and say, hey, th- those things are not business application features. I, you know, that's kind of a waste of my time. And I just want to add out there that I think, you know, moving forward, folks need to start thinking a little bit differently about how they build business applications and what constitutes a business application. You know, it's, right. it's more than just uh, 800 fields on a battleship gray form these days. You know, as we get in, you know, more of the, 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 um, the people working in the office that are used to iPads and, and uh, tablets and other stuff, as, as you get more of those in, their expectations of what makes a usable business application are going to be quite different than what they were you know, back when we were designing our first uh, .NET 1 application. Battleship Gray is dead? Uh, I hope Battleship Gray is dead. It's all Battleship White now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pete, it's been great geeking out with you for an hour or Same so. Here. Thank you. And I'm um, very much looking forward to build. And people, the sky is not falling. Don't believe it. No, definitely. The sky is looking pretty bright. It's looking pretty damn good. Yep. All right. We'll see you next time on Dot Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions. Providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. 
online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC, yes, I'm a 